For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer diagnosis in women in the United States and currently accounts for the second most cancer deaths in women behind lung cancer. More than 260,000 diagnoses of breast cancer are made each year in this country, and the majority of these are found at an early enough stage that surgery is a preferred option. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner Breast Surgical Oncologist, Dr. Alexa Elder, and plastic surgeon, Dr. Chris Smith, to learn more about the different types of breast cancer surgeries and how surgical decisions are made in collaboration with our patients. So welcome, Dr. Alexa Elder and Dr. Chris Smith to the show. I really appreciate you both coming on, taking the time to talk about this uh, important topic that uh, I know a little bit less about and I'm excited to learn <laughs> from you all. Well, great. Thank, thanks Thank for you. having us. So let me start with uh, Dr. Elder, just uh, by the way of background. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of uh, where you're from and, and your, your training and, and what brought you to New Orleans? Um, well, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but I um, spent most of my adult life in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I trained at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and then Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina for breast surgical oncology. Um, and I came to uh, Oshner because I really liked the people that I was working with, and um, the system was really well run, and I felt like we had good care of patients. And you've been at Oshner for how um, long Just now? over a year. It's not often I meet other people with ties to Jacksonville in New Orleans, and I'm, I'm a Jacksonville native myself and a big Jaguars fan, so... Shout out to the Jags. Uh, Chris, what about you? What, uh, what brought you to New Orleans? Where are you from? Yeah, so I'm, um, it's funny hearing your story. I feel, I've spent a lot of time in close proximity to you. Like I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, um, and did my medical school and undergraduate training in Kansas City. Went to medical school at the Kansas City University of Medicine, which is an osteopathic medical school there. And uh, followed that up with a general surgery residency in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, which is a five-year training program. And then after that, I chose to do additional fellowship training program in plastic surgery, which brought me to Tulane uh, in New Orleans. Um, so I spent three years um, here at Tulane. And at that Tulane training program, we really work at hospitals all over the city and can see you know, what lots of people do and, and work in all the different hospital systems. And so I had a lot of um, exposure to the auctioner system through there. And um uh, Ultimately, when it was time to find a job, there was a, a good opportunity um, for me here. Where I really got to focus on kind of my favorite aspects of reconstruction, uh, or excuse me, reconstructive surgery, which would be uh, breast cancer reconstruction. Great. Well, thanks again for being here, and uh, let's let's get into it. So, let me start with you, Doctor Smith. Y'all are both surgeons, so talk to me. How does 
a patient typically find their way into a clinic seeing one of you guys? In the terms of breast cancer and how, how a patient kind of gets hooked up with a, a breast surgeon or our system, the, the kind of gatekeepers seem to be where women get their mammography. Um, so I'm sure as many of the people who listen to this podcast know, you go in regularly for your mammograms. And if there's ever something abnormal, usually the, the radiologists at that um, center are on it. They have you come back. They may do a biopsy. Um, but once they find something abnormal, they refer you uh, typically to one of the um, breast surgeons, which would be Dr. Elder or her partner. So then at that point, you know, the kind of die is cast uh, really by where you got your mammogram, who you end up um, seeing in terms of a system for your um, you know, breast cancer care. And we'll talk a little bit later about a, the multidisciplinary care. But, you know, I do think one of the first physicians, correct me if I'm wrong, that patients, after they get the diagnosis of breast cancer, one of the first people they meet is their surgeon before they might meet a medical oncologist or a radiation oncologist. I do agree that, you know, moving, you know, once you get your mammogram, get your biopsy, the first person to really talk about the diagnosis with you is, is the breast cancer surgeon. Is that accurate to say? Um, yeah, we really kind of are unique in a lot of the surgery fields in that we really kind of do the initial intake of patients who have breast cancer um, and help to direct them to their additional treatments. A lot of patients for breast cancer, we really individualize their treatment so they may not need to see the radiation doctor. They, you know, we usually see a medical oncologist, but there's certain scenarios where they may not need to. Um, so it really helps to kind of guide each patient to the right people. Um, and a lot of times the results from surgery can really dictate um, which of those treatments are necessary. So it's really helpful to have the surgery discussion first. So how common is this? Dr. Elder, I'll ask you, how common are breast cancer surgeries both that you see every day or just in the United States or in, in general? Well, breast cancer overall is very common. About one in eight women get breast cancer. And I would say most patients are surgical candidates as long as they don't have metastatic disease. And most breast cancer um, in the United States presents in um, early stages. So most patients have surgery as some type of treatment. Surgery is always important if if the patient is looking for a cure of their cancer. There's really no treatments out there that don't include surgery that can cure your cancer. And what different types of breast cancer surgeries are there? So there are two broad categories of breast cancer surgery. One would be a lumpectomy or what's also called a partial mastectomy and the other is a mastectomy. A lumpectomy is where we essentially remove only part of the breast, the part that has the cancer in it. And then a mastectomy is removing the whole breast. There's different variations to both of those type of surgeries, but those are the general categories. Okay. And let's talk a little bit about breast conserving therapy uh, or a lumpectomy. So, so Dr. Smith, what are some of the considerations, cosmetically, outcomes, the results of a Lumpectomy. So, you know, one of the things in, in even determining if a candidate or if, is, if a patient is a candidate for breast conserving therapy um, is one, how large is their tumor? And two, what is their breast size? So, if they have a moderate sized tumor and a very small breast, uh, we, you know, it may be deforming to take a portion of their breast. Likewise, a person could have a very large tumor and it would be so deforming that it probably wouldn't be worth um, attempting breast conservation therapy. But the important thing to remember is that uh, with breast um, conservation therapy or a lumpectomy, partial mastectomy, is that you are taking a portion of the breast tissue. um, And so there will be some degree of um, hollowing or volume loss in that area. 
Um, sometimes the pockets can be sewn together and help um, keep the breast architecture. Um, sometimes those pockets just fill with fluid and can uh, keep some simulation of their volume. Um, and then there are some women who, you know, maybe very large, have heavy um, pendulous breasts who would otherwise be candidates for breast reduction surgery. Um, and then we can combine their partial mastectomy with a breast reduction. Um, so they actually end up with a breast reduction on their cancer side and on their non-cancer side. And then, you know, the last cosmetic consideration to consider, I know we'll get into radiation therapy um, probably as part of this to briefly touch on that. But um, if you have a breast cancer and have breast conservation therapy, you're almost certainly going to get radiation, which can affect um, how the breast looks over time as well. I'll kind of comment there a little bit and just say as an explanation that the recommendation for the vast majority of patients is if you do have a lumpectomy or breast conserving therapy that you will have post-operative radiation. And that's the best management to reduce the risk of recurrence uh, of the cancer. And for most patients, with some caveats, of course, if you have a mastectomy, uh, those patients can typically avoid post-operative radiation. Is that fair to say? Um, yes. With the mastectomy, usually those patients, um, the main things that would make you need radiation would be a breast cancer that's larger than about five centimeters or um, lymph nodes that are involved with cancer. But sometimes um, there's other situations that they would recommend radiation. But those are the main things. Um, and sometimes those indications have changed over time. Um, so it's very individualized. But for the most part, if you have a small breast cancer, you would not need a radiation after a mastectomy. Great. And, and let's get into mastectomies a little bit. So there are different types of mastectomies. And the nuances of that I could never explain. So, Dr. Elder, can you tell me a little bit about what the different categories of mastectomies are and how they differ? Right. So, um, with a mastectomy, you're removing all of the breast tissue from underneath the skin. But the skin has a small layer of fat underneath it as well. So, we have to be careful to preserve the fat on the back of the skin so that the skin has enough blood supply to survive. So there's different ways that we can do that, different incisions to get the breast out in one piece. But the really um, thing that differs is how much skin you save. Part of that is a cosmetic um, question on what's your nipple position, um, how would the breast look if you save all the skin, how large a breast the patient would like afterwards. Um, so we can either do a total or what's called a simple mastectomy, move as much skin as possible. That's usually only done if you're not planning on reconstruction because the goal of that would get you as flat as possible against the chest wall. And some people ask for that or talk about that. They say, you know, I just want to go flat. And mm -hmm. that maybe right. here referred to as that. Yeah, some patients would prefer that. Um, they like the option of not wearing a bra. They like just kind of the simplicity of that um, and lower complication rates um, with not having to deal with the reconstruction side of things. Um, so that's typically what a simple mastectomy is. Now, you can also spare some skin, um, which can help to uh, with the reconstruction to have more volume to the breast, um, and that is uh, safe from a cancer standpoint. And we even sometimes spare the nipple, which is um, usually safe from a cancer standpoint. There are some caveats to that. The cancer cannot be right behind the nipple or too close to the nipple or involving the nipple, because then we would need to remove it to remove all the cancer. Um, but otherwise, if the nipple would be in a good position, when you um, to start with, you can probably save it as long as the cancer is not near it. So these are all kind of decisions that are made in the op office with the patient's input, I assume, before the, the surgery, not like a game time decision, right? 
Yeah, we um, discuss it in the surger uh, in the surgical consultation with both me and the plastic surgeon, and it's kind of a discussion of what's safe from a cancer standpoint and also what would look good. Because um, I often tell the patient that if their nipple position doesn't look good already, a lot of times there are some things they can do to augment that, but um, they may look better without the nipple saved in um, some of those situations. Now, what I've always thought was interesting is just the historical change in how mastectomies used to be performed, right? So I remember reading, I mean, some obviously in my medical education, but also in uh, a wonderful book, The Emperor of All Maladies. I don't know if you've ever read it, but, you know, kind of goes through the, the biography of cancer and just how deforming the initial mastectomies used to be, right? The Halstead. The Halstead mastectomy where they take the entire pec muscle underneath the breast and all the lymph nodes and... Um, yeah, that, that it's changed a lot since then. And I think that's, um, you know, in terms of what we can do and how much tissue we can conserve with these operations is, is changed. And even since I started my surgical training, um, you know, the indications of which, uh, patients can have a nipple sparing mastectomy has increased, or I should say that the people who, you know, the distance from the nipple has gotten closer that you can be. And, and we're realizing that saving more tissue and some of that is because of our, you know, other types of treatment um, that we that we have, um, we've really been able to do less and less invasive surgery over time for patients. Right. So I feel like a lot of people's maybe preconceived image or notion of what a mastectomy is maybe is a, a little bit outdated for some patients and, and really the, the field has moved quite a bit. Let's briefly discuss what are some potential complications. So a patient is coming for either a breast conserving therapy or a, or a mastectomy, what are some things that we do see from time to time postoperatively you tell patients to watch out for? I can take this because a lot all of right. your mastectomies I've reconstructed and, and so I kind of own all the immediate post-op complications. You know, so one of the most common things that we see is a hematoma or bleeding, which would be a collection of blood. Um, if that's in a reconstructed breast or e even in someone who's gone flat, oftentimes um, if they have a big collection, we may have to go back to the operating room to drain it because um, it can be deforming to the skin or deforming to the uh, breast reconstruction or put the breast reconstruction at risk of failing. And another thing we see commonly is a collection of fluid. Anytime in the body where we make open spaces where tissue used to be, your body wants to fill those spaces with fluid. Oftentimes we leave small drains in the operating room to help get that fluid out of the body and they may stay for one to two weeks uh, after surgery. But uh, certainly those would be the two most common things we see. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of post-op wound infections. In breast surgery, we may see some superficial healing issues, um, but typically if you don't have an, an implant, if it's just your own tissue, uh, true you know, wound infections um, aren't that common. And then when we talk about reconstruction with implants, um, there's also a risk of those devices getting infected or having wound breakdown, those devices becoming exposed and having to have um, those complications treated in the operator, operating room. Great. Moving on, I'm going to touch a little bit on staging of breast cancer because I want to get into management of, of lymph nodes. And I think that's kind of a complicated conversation to have, but let's set the stage a little bit by talking about staging. So in most solid tumors, we stage patients in a TNM categorization. That's the kind of um, formula we use to, to stage patients. The T standing for the tumor, the tumor size uh, in breast cancer is uh, predominantly how we stage the T stage. Um, in other cancers, it's how 
fart invades into the wall of the colon or something like that. The N refers to nodes. So are there nodes involved? How many nodes are involved? Where are the nodes involved? And the M in the TNM designates metastasis, meaning the spread of cancer to a distant part of the body. So that's an important thing we need to do with patients when they initially come in. You provide a clinical stage, and obviously that can change potentially after the surgery based on what you find on the surgical pathology. There are certain patients who come in to a clinic. They're seen by their breast surgeon. They're seen by a medical oncologist. Maybe they're seen by a radiation oncologist. And perhaps after a multidisciplinary conversation, a decision might be made to do some treatment even before they have surgery. This is particularly the case for certain subsets of patients who have breast cancer. So we know that patients with something called HER2 amplifications, that's a protein that's overexpressed on certain breast cancers, or patients who have something called triple negative breast cancer. This is a category of patients who do not have that HER2 expression and patients who do not seem to have their cancers driven by female hormones such as estrogen and progesterone. Those are particularly patients who we think about giving upfront treatment before surgery, particularly chemotherapy or in the case of the HER2 overexpression um, patients using something called targeted therapy that blocks that HER2 protein in combination with chemotherapy. All of this is multi-purpose as one try to reduce the chance of the cancer spreading initially, also because sometimes you can get pretty dramatic responses to the treatment before surgery and potentially make, number one, the surgery easier, but also potentially having a better chance to get all, all of the cancer with the surgery. And then also it gives you a unique chance when you use these preoperative therapies to see the biology of the cancer. So for example, you give someone chemotherapy or targeted therapy before surgery, then you go and take the tumor out after perhaps several months of therapy. The pathologist can look under the microscope and say, hey, this treatment worked really, really well. Your tumor is very responsive to treatment. Maybe I see just a small tumor where previously on the imaging, the mam mammogram or the breast MRI or, or the ultrasound, we saw a five centimeter tumor. Now it's only down to one centimeter. And there are some patients, a certain percentage, who have a complete response where you don't see any tumor cells left inside of the breast tissue anymore. And that can be very helpful in terms of prognosis for patients and predictive of what therapies might work best for them. So given that background in terms of staging and how we think about these preoperative treatments, what do you do with lymph nodes? So how do you address management surgically of the lymph nodes? Do you take them out? Do you do sentinel biopsies? All this kind of stuff. And, and walk me through what that means and, and how you make that decision. So the first thing that we think about when we have an invasive breast cancer is if the lymph nodes seem to be involved or not. And how we tell that is um, we actually do a physical exam. And the most common lymph nodes that are involved with breast cancer are the lymph nodes under that same arm, the axillary lymph nodes. So on physical exam, if they're involved with a significant amount, usually you can feel an enlarged lymph node there. Um, and to varying degrees, it may be movable or non-movable. And that helps us know if we think a lymph node's involved. Also, commonly at the time of your mammogram, you also get an ultrasound of your underarm. Um, we pretty much routinely do that here at Oshner, but not everywhere does that. And with that ultrasound, they look to see if there's any enlarged lymph nodes on the ultrasound in that same area. If there's an enlarged lymph node, they will often biopsy it. So um, a lot of patients actually know about their lymph node status before they even get to me um, because often they'll get a biopsy at their initial breast biopsy. So the really important um, area of distinction is, are the lymph nodes already suspicious or not? 
So if the lymph nodes are not already suspicious, say if the ultrasound's fine, the physical exam's fine, what we usually do is something called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So that is a surgical procedure that's done at the time of the breast surgery. And it's done essentially the same way no matter if you get a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. And what we do is we inject dye into the breast, and the dye travels from the breast to lymph nodes under the same arm. It basically shows you the pathway that a cell could take if it was going to spread from the breast to the lymph nodes. It doesn't tell you if it has done that. It mostly just tells you which lymph nodes are most at risk of having the cancer in it. So then, um, under the arm, I go, I either make a separate incision with a lumpectomy or through the same incision typically with a mastectomy and look under the arm. There, the lymph nodes will take up the dye. The most common ones used are either a, a dye that has a small amount of radioactivity, that's safe for patients, or a blue dye that, that turns the lymph nodes blue. You can use both or either one of those to identify which lymph nodes are most at risk. It usually is about two to three lymph nodes, though it varies from person to person. It can be one, it could be five. But whatever lymph nodes light up with that dye, we remove them at the time of the surgery. They again can be looked at under the microscope by the pathologist, and they can tell us if the lymph nodes have cancer in them. Now, sometimes that's done while you're asleep, and sometimes that's done later, um, and you get the results later, and it just depends on certain situations if they're able to do that while you're asleep or not. But that is how we decide if the lymph nodes are involved, so that gives us an answer if they're involved in a microscopic level. Now, if the lymph nodes are involved before your surgery, like if they were suspicious on the imaging or on biopsy, then um, there's really two options. One, if you're going to surgery without any prior treatment, we actually remove all the lymph nodes. That's something called an axillary lymph node dissection. So remove all the lymph nodes in the underarm there on that side. Or if you have treatment like chemotherapy before surgery, we can often assess the response to the chemotherapy by doing a single lymph node biopsy after the chemotherapy at the time of your breast surgery, and then only remove the breast lymph nodes if the cancer cells are still living at that time. So there are some nuances to that, but most patients do have their lymph nodes checked. It's very rare that they don't. Um, only um, sometimes we don't check them in older women with very early stage small breast cancers, or with non-invasive breast cancer, they're not always checked, something like DCIS. That's really interesting, and I think very well explained uh, so that even I can understand it. <laughs> um, so let me ask you a question as well. How do you decide, you know, talking about the management of the lymph nodes, let's say you know someone's lymph nodes are involved. How do you decide when to say, all right, I need to get a CT scan to assess for maybe distant metastatic disease, or I'm satisfied that it's just in the lymph node, or it, what's the trigger to kind of do the, the full workup to make sure it has not spread elsewhere? You know, the medical oncologists kind of decide that on a case-to-case -case basis. Patients will often get either CT scans or a PET scan, or um, if they do the CT scans, they may add something like a bone scan that looks at your bones. But it really depends. Um, I think they factor in not only um, how suspicious, um, how many lymph nodes are involved, how big the cancer is, but also um, like the markers or uh, what the uh, cancer is responding to. They all t typically always get it before starting chemotherapy um, because they really want to be sure of where all the cancer is so that they can assess for response. Um, but if they're not doing new adjuvant chemotherapy um, before checking out the lymph nodes, we don't always check it. Right. So let me ask you, Dr. Smith. So a patient's already had a mastectomy. 
you know, I think this is kind of where your your expertise comes in. What are their options for breast reconstruction? How much time do we have to talk? <laughs> so, um, you know, when I see a patient, um, say, who's planning mastectomy or double mastectomy, you know, they, they come and see me and we talk about reconstructive options. And, you know, it's not uncommon for me to spend 30 minutes kind of going through all the options and, and answering questions for a patient if, if they're candidates for both types. But when we talk about breast reconstruction, we essentially go down through one of two pathways. One would be reconstruction with a breast implant, and the other would be reconstruction with their own tissue. Um, if we start about or start talking about reconstruction with a breast implant, even then the pathway kind of splits again on some women who usually have um, small to moderate sized breasts. Uh, we may be able to go straight to an implant at the time and, and put put a breast implant in immediately after their mastectomy. Um, probably more commonly, we do we call um, what we call a tissue expander is put in, and that is essentially a temporary inflatable breast implant. So we can put that in at the time of mastectomy, partially inflate it, and then in the office with saline, we can slowly expand um, this over time. Once we get it to the size that that patient would like to be, or this uh, this uh, device is fully expanded, and then we wait a few months. What we want is your body to create a, a scar capsule around it. Um, any foreign body in a patient's body, they're going to make scar to wall it off because your body doesn't want it there. We use that to our advantage. We wait till that scar capsule is formed, and then we take the patient back to the operating room. Um, several months later and replace the temporary implant for a permanent breast implant. So that's kind of one pathway. The other pathway is uh, using the patient's own tissue for their reconstruction. That There's several donor sites and we call it areas we can take tissue from. Um, traditionally, this was done with tissue that was kind of nearby that could be moved into place uh, on its blood supply from the muscles, either from the abdomen or from the back. However, you know, within the last 20 years or so, and this was in part pioneered in New Orleans, um, there's tissue that we can take and do what we call a free flap or free tissue transfer, which means I can identify an area of, of tissue, which would be skin and fat. We can dissect out its, its blood supply, completely divide it, and then move it up to the chest. It's essentially a transplant on the patient's own body. So our typical donor sites or sites we can take tissue from would be the abdomen, the thighs, the back, the flanks. Um, but what we tend to gravitate towards is the abdomen. A lot of uh, cancer patients, mastectomy patients, happen to be middle-aged women who may have a little bit of extra skin and, and fat on their lower abdomen. And so it, it kind of works out well that we can, we can use that to, to their advantage and use it to reconstruct the breast. And do you typically, just out of my curiosity, when, when patients come in, I mean, you, you talk them through these are your options and they kind of weigh the pros and the cons and they ultimately decide, um, you know, um, you know, I, I don't know, do, do you have any numbers on people choosing uh, implants versus using uh, their own tissue? So, you know, the, the patient, you know, they need to have, if we're considering using their own tissue, they have to have some extra somewhere. Sure. You know, if, if they're a very thin patient, they're not really going to have extra tissue that we can take. But all things being equal in a patient who is a candidate for both, that's one thing that's that's very different about breast cancer reconstruction is it's very individualized to the patient. Um, you know, other types of cancer that I treat, you know, you got to cut a melanoma off the arm. There's a hole on the arm. You know, they, they trust the doctor to get their skin together the best way that, that they can. This is different. The patients can choose. And so nationally, about 70% of breast reconstruction is done with implants. Mm -hmm. um, some of that depends on access to care. Um, some of the, 
you know, some women don't really get reconstruction because they don't have access to a um, plastic surgeon for reconstruction. Um, some of that depends on access. Some of that depends on the practice patterns and the training of the surgeons in the area. Like I said, this is the abdominal-based reconstruction. We call it the, the DIEP, or the deep flap. It's an acronym for the blood vessels that the, um, that the abdominal tissue is, is supplied by. Um, that you know, was pioneered in New Orleans, and, and that's um, a very popular reconstructive method here. Shifting gears a little bit outside of cancer, let me ask you guys a question. Are there any patients that you see that don't have cancer? Maybe they don't yet have cancer? Or um, I know certainly, Dr. Smith, if you're seeing patients who are cosmetically seeking uh, breast augmentation or reduction, that's a little bit different. But what about for perhaps cancer prophylaxis, Dr. Elder? So, yeah, there are a group of patients that would benefit from prophylactic breast removal uh, to decrease the risk of breast cancer. Um, so the main patients that benefit from that are patients that have high-risk genetic mutations. So usually these people have multiple family members with breast cancer, potentially ovarian cancer, um, and uh, have genetic testing that proves that they have a genetic mutation. There are other genetic um, risk factors um, with other cancers that can be related. The main ones I think about are gastric cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, melanoma. So if the uh, patient had family members with any of these cancers with any frequency, then we would really look for their genetic testing to make sure they don't have one of these genetic mutations. Other thing is really strong family history of cancer. So sometimes a family may have a mutation that we just can't prove with genetic testing. So if there are certain families out there where every single one of the daughters or every single one of their sisters has had breast cancer at a young age, Age matters um, when we think about genetic mutations. Um, patients who have breast cancer before the age of 45 are considered young for having breast cancer. And so that also piques your interest in thinking that the patient's family may have a genetic mutation. Um, so it's usually those patients. There are other medium risk and low risk mutations out there that um, the benefit from an, uh, re prophylactically removing the breast is limited. And other high-risk uh, lesions in the breast, something like atypical cells, and uh, many decades ago were considered a reason to remove the breast. Um, but these days, we actually don't recommend that. So it's mostly the patients who have some type of genetic mutation that is high risk to them. And the prophylactic removal of the breast can reduce the risk by about 90%. It doesn't reduce it to zero. So while the highest risk one we think about is something called BRCA1, and they have about a 50 to 70%, depending on their age, um, risk of cancer in the future. And we can reduce that um, by about 90%. So unfortunately, we can't get to the zero, but it does give them a big benefit um, when their risk is so high. Great. Now, moving to our recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk? So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Smith, what can I do, or, or not me specifically, but uh, the average uh, female, uh, do to decrease my risk of developing breast cancer? So certainly there's, there's some things that, that you can do, and some are the, are the cards you're dealt. And so like we talked about the genetic risk, so knowing your family history, um, knowing if you've had multiple... Uh, first and second degree relatives with with breast cancer, especially at younger ages, um, you may need to get screened earlier. You know, we typically start with a mammogram at 40 years of age, but if you've had younger um, aged women in your family with breast cancer, they may need to start your screening earlier, which could pick up either a lesion before it turns into an invasive cancer or detected at an earlier stage. Another thing that we know is 
non-smoking status. If you're not a smoker, it decreases your risk of breast cancer. Also, people who are physically active generally eat uh, healthier diets, lower risks of breast cancer. And, and then another thing we know about breast cancer is that your risk, especially of the um, you know, estrogen receptor um, triggered cancers are that kind of the more menstrual cycles and more periods you have in your life, you end up being a higher risk. So if you start your, um, you know, if your first period, you're very young and you never have children and then you have menopause late, then you've had a lot of periods in your lifetime, you're going to be a higher risk versus someone who's had children. Um, breastfeeding um, also reduces your risk of breast cancer. Um, so it, it's a mix of what we call, you know, modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Great. And I kind of made a little bit of a reference to females only being at risk, but it's not a 100% female disease. So just as a personal anecdote, my grandfather had breast cancer. So we know it is, I saw Dr. Elder's eyes light up. He did have genetic testing and it was negative. And that was back at least a a couple decades ago, perhaps more, maybe three decades ago. So the genetic testing probably wasn't as in, in depth as it is today. And uh, no one else, no other males in my family. But, you know, it's not an exclusively female disease. That's true. So our next recurring segment, Dr. Elder, how do we treat breast cancer at Oshner? So um, patients uh, will see the breast surgeon um, first, typically, but often um, patients may see the medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist before surgery or after surgery. Some patients will see all three of us on the same day. We have a multidisciplinary clinic. Typically, it's more complex patients that would benefit from that. It is a long appointment for the patients, so some patients um, don't want such a long day. Um, but it is helpful for certain patients that are very complex or even patients that are traveling from far away to see all three of us on the same day. Um, we also have a tumor board. We discuss patients with um, whose care may um, be in question or if we want to discuss kind of interesting cases that may benefit um, other patients. Um, but uh, that's the main ways that patients are... Um, treated at Oshner. Patients get a combination of either surgery first or new adjuvant, if uh, chemotherapy, if they would benefit from that. And there are some things that we do um, after surgery that are also helpful for patients. Um, there is a genetic testing um, on the tumors itself that medical oncologists often order. Um, these testings um, can help them know what their future risk of the breast cancer coming back are, and they can tailor their medical treatments um, based on that risk score. Um, so we often get that after surgery based on the tumor um, that was removed at the time of surgery. Um, and um, as we alluded to before, patients often get genetic testing. Um, we often initiate that at the time of their breast cancer initial consultation. Um, they may have not thought or asked their family members about their cancer history until they themselves got cancer. So it's often a patient finds out, oh, actually my aunt had cancer, and oh, my cousin had cancer, and um, they realize that they maybe were actually at risk and they didn't know about that. And so we often initiate genetic testing at the time of their cancer diagnosis. And for our next recurring segment, what should I ask my doctor at my first appointment? So, Dr. Elder, what do you want patients to ask you at their first appointment with their breast surgical oncologist? You know, the, one of the big questions patients always ask me about is stage, which is kind of a hard one. Um, 
I, because I feel like they shouldn't focus on that um, across um, all the stages, really. Breast cancer patients do phenomenally well. So I don't want them to focus too much on the stage because I think they're still going to have really good outcomes. Also, the staging often um, differs after surgery. So with breast cancer, like we talked about before, we're checking your lymph nodes. We're taking the breast cancer out. We're measuring the size. So the mammogram only estimates the size. It could be smaller. It could be a little bit bigger. Um, the lymph nodes, um, we have to really get them out to really test them. So staging can differ um, after surgery, and that's really the one that matters. So when they come in, I really want them not to focus on their stage and to really kind of focus on they're going to do really well. What are the steps that it's going to take to do that? And so the main things that are really important are actually the uh, receptors. So they're called a lot of things. They're called tumor markers, receptors. But um, they're basically the question of what does your cancer respond to? Why is it growing? So estrogen and progesterone are the main ones. Those are the female hormones. And those ones are really important to know. Uh, breast cancers that respond to those are much less aggressive in the way that they act. They're less likely to spread to other places in their body. Um, so it's good to have those receptors. The estrogen receptor in particular has medications that can uh, utilize this and decrease your estrogen effects so that can decrease the risk of it coming back. And the HER2 that we talked about before, um, that's a protein that makes uh, the breast cancer a little bit more aggressive in its manner. So it's good to know if you have that so that you can be aggressive in the way that you attack it. And you may have special targeted therapies that can attack that HER2. So really the receptors are probably the most important piece uh, because we really de determine what additional therapies you might need. The other thing I think that's important is patients really focus on that when they are thinking about their surgery options. Um, for the most part, excluding some certain situations, um, how aggressive the cancer is doesn't really impact which breast cancer surgery um, you need to have. So um, it's really more of a, is it reasonable to take out the cancer? Is there going to be enough tissue left to make a, a breast that looks like a good breast um, to the patient? And so that's really helped determine if you can have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy from a technical standpoint. And it doesn't really matter if the breast cancer is a really aggressive type or a um, less aggressive type. Um, usually the, if it's the same breast with the same size tumor, they're going to have the same options. I think that was really well explained. And one thing I'll kind of close with on that point is just that, as you can see, this is all very complicated. And to kind of give a one-stop shop prescription, this is how we treat breast cancer. It's just you can't do that. It really needs to be individualized to the molecular markers, to the breast that you're treating, to the patient and what their desires and hopes and outcomes are, that there is no one-size-fits-all to breast cancer surgery, to breast cancer treatment. And we really kind of take that approach. And I think from the surgeons especially, it's about engaging that conversation with the patient about what their wishes are uh, within the confines of what their disease is, of course. For our next recurring segment, fact or fiction, so I'm going to uh, state a statement, and I want you guys to kind of let me know if this is fact or fiction, and then if you wish, you can give me a little explainer. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Smith, I'll start with you. Uh, I have a strong family history of breast cancer, so I should have a prophylactic double mastectomy. So I should preemptively remove both of my breasts. I would say that 
you know, you need to have a conversation about prophylactic mastectomies and, and your risk. It's it's the theme of, of breast cancer, like we talked about. The treatment is so individualized. And so if you have a, a high risk, what you need is to, to know that risk, have that quantified with certain tools that we look at, uh, with uh, numbers of family members that can give us risk factors and also genetics, and then decide, you know, are you someone who would benefit from it, number one? And number two, you know, the timing of this is is not something that you need to run out and do immediately. Um, if you're young and you've got young children or planning to have children, we can do increased surveillance, which uh, sometimes may involve, um, you know, uh, alternating MRIs and ultrasounds every six months uh, to look for cancers. But you can still have children, breastfeed your children, and then, you know, or there could be other things going on in your life and you can pick a time that, that you're ready to, to talk about, you know, what surgery looks like and what reconstruction looks like. So not clearly fact or fiction. It depends. It depends. Fair. Yeah. Okay. All right, Dr. Elder, this one's for you. I don't want to have radiation after surgery, so I should opt for a mastectomy. Um, that's fiction, unfortunately. Um, so some patients, if their breast cancer is large or if um, the lymph nodes are involved, would need radiation after a mastectomy. But I'd also challenge that patient to say, why are you, why are you so against radiation? Because I, when I talk to patients about that, it comes up a lot. They maybe have a, patient, a family member who's, or a friend that's had radiation to another part of the body. Um, they maybe don't understand what the side effects of radiation are versus chemotherapy. Like they think they may lose their hair, um, which you don't typically do with radiation. Um, radiation also, the side effects really depend on where the radiation is aimed at. So luckily the breast is kind of on the outer part of our body. So um, there's not a lot of collateral damage when the breast is radiated versus other areas of the body, like something like the head and neck, where radiation could give you significant difficulty swallowing and things. With the breast, you may have different side effects. Um, so I really kind of try to educate them on what breast radiation is all about and kind of what expected side effects there are. So they have a little bit of more of an educated decision um, about that. Great. All right, Dr. Smith, back to you. Breast augmentation with implants increases my risk for getting breast cancer. Um, so the answer to this is fact and also fiction. <laughs> um, so... We're kind of opening up a, a can of worms here. Um, there, There is a newer entity that I'm finding more and more women are um, becoming aware of and asking me about in consultation, which is called Breast Implant Associated ALCL, or Anaplastic Large Cell Lymphoma. Earlier, I talked about the, um, the capsule, uh, that scar ball that forms around the implant. And what we've seen is, is some women, um, and this is an average of 10 years after they've had an implant, um, may develop a low-grade um, lymphoma in that kind of chronic, in, you know, inflamed scar tissue. And that usually presents with one breast looks bigger or collects fluid on one side out of the blue. Um, now, I'll say that is only associated with textured implants, which some implants are smooth. Some have a textured coating to help keep them in place. And essentially, once this was discovered, very few people still use textured breast implants. That being said, in the United States, you know, of the millions and millions of breast implants that have been put in, there's been 400 cases, 1,200 worldwide. Um, so there is a very, a very low risk of that if you have a texture device. There, that and the uh, the ALCL has never been associated with a smooth breast implant. I'll also say that, 
what has been shown in, in the plastic surgery literature is in women who've had cosmetic um, breast augmentations with implants, um, with smooth implants, uh, they actually have a lower risk of breast cancer. The mechanism for that is is not is not very well known. They think that maybe because of having that inflammation around the breast for your scar capsule, that your body may be surveilling this breast tissue more and may notice if some abnormal cells happen to mutate. Um, but women, uh, when you look at a large population, there is a slightly lower risk of, of breast cancer with uh, a breast augmentation. So you're trying to tell me that the plastic surgeons developed immunotherapy before the, the PhDs in medical oncology. There's some good basic sciences <laughs> papers looking at, uh, you know, what kind of markers may be elevated in these people. That's actually really interesting. Uh, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it makes sense. Okay, I guess, Dr. Smith, you'll be the best one to answer uh, fact or fiction on this one, too. Well, either of you if you have a, a comment. But everyone is a candidate for breast reconstruction, fact or fiction. So that, that is the easiest question that's actually, unfortunately, a fiction. Um, there are certainly um, some people who may have, uh, it could be two things. One, it could be other medical comorbidities. Cormo um, if they have, you know, poorly controlled diabetes, um, they may have uh, medical problems, heart conditions that may not be safe for them to have surgery any longer than they need to. Um, those are patients that aren't candidates for breast reconstruction. Uh, we talked briefly earlier, you know, you may not have access to a breast reconstructive surgeon or be able to come back and forth from New Orleans from, you know, whatever outside, and it may be, um, may be too much for these people. And then there's some patients, at least with their initial, um, you know, breast cancer surgery, their mastectomy, the, the breast surgeons may think, you know, this is a very locally aggressive cancer. I don't want to risk the complications of reconstruction and delaying any other radiation or chemo. So we should just get, you know, get your surgery, get you healed, and get you moved on to the rest of your cancer treatment. Fiction it is. Fiction. I think it's a bar without a note that um, patients, if even some of those patients, if their um, comorbidities get better or if um, they're doing well from their cancer treatment, they could become a candidate later. So just because you didn't have it with your initial surgery, you can go back and have a delayed reconstruction um, at a later date. And um, I think that, you know, some patients are able to do that later. Yeah, that's, that's important to note in the, you know, the kind of implant-based pathway and the reconstruction with your own tissue may, may apply. Mm -hmm. We see patients that may be years out from their mastectomies and thought, you know, it was just a lot. I had a lot going on. I just wanted to get it off and not worry about that. And now they're back because they feel, they don't feel whole without their breasts. Right. Really interesting. Well, look, I learned a lot uh, from this conversation and um, I, I think a lot of people listening will too. Uh, certainly not something I, I get to talk about every day and um, thank you guys for educating me and hopefully a lot of other people too and uh, thanks for coming and chatting with us about this uh, really important topic yeah thanks thank for you. having us so if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with breast cancer i hope this episode can give you some guidance on the surgical management options for removal of the cancer and then breast reconstruction the oshner breast cancer treatment team uses a collaborative multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease with the latest surgical, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. We tailor our treatments to our individual patients and utilize the most up-to-date medical evidence to guide our recommendations. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.oshner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute, 
I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.